We hear you. We're here for you. We stand firm and unwavering when we say Black Lives Matter. So welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan. And with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Hey there, VJ. How goes today? Hey, good, good. Going well. Summer's uh, kicking on in. Kicking on in, yeah. Yeah, it's getting starting to get warmer and warmer. Warmer and warmer. Let's yeah. Let's weather it up. Uh, yeah, told you I had a nice little hike yesterday. Um, but, um, you know, summer summer in full effect, isn't it? Exactly. I'm excited exactly. we got a, we got a poet on the show today. It's yeah. Been a while, yeah. It's been a while since we've had a poet, so this 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 is exciting. Uh, yeah, our featured guest is Mario Jose Pagan Morales, um, a New Rican poet and cultural worker born in Ponce, Puerto Rico, and raised in South Bronx. His work is anthologized in the Break, Breakbeat Poets, Volume 4, Latinx, um, Haymarket Books, 2020, Birds Fall Silent in the Mechanical Sea, Great Weather for Media, 2019, and in the 2019, the Performance of Breath edition of the and Centos Review, edited by um, Peggy uh, Robles Alvardo and Lupe Mendez. Pagan is the founding member of the Titeri Poets, a collective of poets challenging the boundaries of masculinity and vulnerability. In addition, he's a Pushcart Prize nominee and co-founder of the La Esquina Open Mic, a series in service Latinx poetry community from coast to coast. He makes some in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, uh, Mario. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's really great to hear um, your in your bio a collective of poets challenging the boundaries of masculinity and vulnerability. As someone who's an emerging mental health counselor, um, you know, it's unfortunately I think that many men who enter therapy and enter um, the therapeutic process are a little behind the curve to women mm. identified folks um, because I feel like women tend to be a little bit more um, in touch with their emotions than the typical masculine, uh, you know, masculine identified or person who's male. Uh, I think mostly cisgendered men, but, um, but I don't know whether or not, um, you know, other uh, like transgender men also fall into this. I'm not sure, but I know they have trouble accessing their emotions as immediately as women. What do you think? And hmm. What is, what is your, what is your work in challenging the boundaries of masculinity? And so, uh, the Titere Poets um, were founded in 2015, I think, 2016. Yeah. And um, what we did was uh, we were part of a, an amazing workshop called La Sopa, created by Johnny Rose and Juan Pablo Santiago and the Capicu family. Um, and Rich Villal, who was the facilitator at the time, wanted to um, get the guys together, uh, this writing workshop, and... Uh, touch on being vulnerable. Um, I think as men of color, coming from Puerto Rican background, it just happens to be we're all Puerto Rican. Um, you know, uh, the trauma that is passed down generationally uh, from grandfather to father to son, you know, and this whole idea that men can't be in touch with the divine feminine mm. um, has really, like, completely, like, destroyed us as men. Uh, this ideology of, you know, men can't be soft or they can't be nurturers or, you know, we, we have to, you know, be the provider of, you know, for the family and we can't really show emotion has really caused like major damage, um, to us as men. Um, not only men of color, but I just think across the whole spectrum. 
Um, so what we did is we got together and we started having conversations around that. You know, what it was, what is it really to be a man? You know, what were the ideas that were passed down to us and how we, how do we dismantle that? You know, how do we take a step back and look at it and say, well, you know, that's, that's not the way we should handle things. Um, you know, we're, we're created to be these concrete walls and to be aggressive immediately, you know, and, and I think you touched uh, on it, you know, through therapy. Um, a lot of us, you know, have been able to take a step back and really look at these teachings that were passed down. And, you know, uh, we also have a podcast where we discuss, you know, mental health, um, parenting, um, having, you know, children of the LGBTQ background. So, you know, we, we've been doing the work little by little and also in our writings as well. You know, um, I think for me personally, there's a softer touch and approach when I write versus being a little edgy or aggressive, you know. So, um, yeah, that's that's what we've been doing little by little. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, some of the things you in our pre-interview talk, we were talking about things that you uh, feel like you have the most amount of um but you can talk about it for ages, what areas of expertise you have professionally. And you put down 80s pop culture and pro wrestling as being uh, <laughs> it's a really interesting like dichotomy there. Pro wrestling is an interesting thing to look at. Um, you know, how as a cultural artifact, what is it doing? It's one of the precursors to the Trump presidency, as you know, as we all know, that he was like featured on pro wrestling. Yeah. And then he became the president. Uh, and then he like... A lot of that bravado that he used in the showmanship in pro wrestling, he was like displayed in full effect in his presidency. Absolutely. And and what do you think about the what in, in tying that to masculinity and tying that to like what effect you or what is the what is the use of what is the role of uh, pro wrestling in our cultural uh, landscape? Oh wow! Um, so that's a that's a great question. <laughs> I you know when we look at um, professional wrestling, you know it's it's been addressed as hyper-violence, you know, it promotes uh, violence, but if, if you look at it um, as a telenovela, right, as yeah. a soap opera, yeah. you know, that's that's how I view it, you know. Um, it is entertaining, it has its entertaining, sometimes it's over the top, sometimes it's, um, you know, a little too uh, violent, and I, I do agree totally with that. I'm extremely selective also to what I listen to, uh, to what I watch. And so I, I pick and choose what I like to, to look at. Um, I'm an old school um, wrestling head back from the 80s when, yeah. when we thought it was real, you know, <laughs> the storylines and stuff like that. I'm not really, I don't really like the new stuff as much. Yeah. Um, although I'm nostalgic, you know, and I'll, I'll see one of the wrestlers from the 80s show up. Like, um, but you know, it's it's a art form. I always look at it as an art form. Uh, you just don't have to be physically able to do what you're doing in the ring, but you need to be an actor. You need to be a performer. Um, and some of these guys are amazing with the art craft. You know, so so yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. It's it's a 
it's theater. It was theater, even more than a, more than sport at, at, at times. Mm-hmm. But not to take away from the the athleticism that that they uh, they they actually do possess, being able to you know plunge off top ropes and yeah. some of the some <laughs> of the uh, the flips and, and whatnot they can do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I got into that you know so uh, yeah young, and and how it kind of like informed art too, like kind of the promos, uh, like the pre to the fighting. Um, and so I, I, I guess I'd be interested to hear a little bit more, um, you know, you coming up, um, what, uh, what you did, gra- when did you first start gravitating towards arts? And then in particular, I guess, poetry, um, was it an escape? Was there, was, was it an outlet for you? Um, you know, were you, were you doing sports at first and, and switched uh, a little bit about, you know, how you got into initially? So, um, my story is a little different from most writers and poets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I finally have been able to get to a point in my life where I could speak without feeling guilty about speaking about my family. Um, but, you know, um, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I have a nickname. They call me Smush okay. uh, because I'm really sensitive about certain things. But I, I grew up in a big family in the Bronx uh, on 183rd and 3rd Avenue. Um, I lived in the Bronx most of my life. And although my mother and my father were great parents, and um, I came from that family that I took a village, so I had my grandmother in the building, my seven uncles, my aunt. Uh, When it came to education, it wasn't something that was... um, You had to get good grades. You had to. Mm. And then if you didn't, they would question as to why you weren't getting good grades. And maybe I wasn't getting good grades because no one was helping me. You know, and being a kid that lived in two worlds from, you know, first language being Spanish and then English, uh, there was a language barrier with my parents because they really didn't speak, you know, English. So it was difficult for them to help me. So I struggled my whole educational career. Um, However, one of the things that I always gravitated to was uh, music. And music was my first poetry teacher. Uh, I gravitate to lyrics. As I said earlier, I'm very selective to what I listen to. So, yeah, I might listen to, you know, Jay-Z song, but maybe not his whole album. Mm-hmm. You know, and I might listen to uh, Guns N' Roses song or two, but not their whole catalog. So I'm very selective. So I was the kid who would grab the record or the tape and rewrite the lyrics, you know, and memorize the songs or at, at least... If I don't memorize it, I know what the lyrics are as I'm singing along with it. Um, it wasn't till uh, when I got... I've always written. I came from a church background, so I've always, I was able to like be in front of people and talk. But it wasn't until I was 18 um, when uh, I was about to graduate high school and my teacher, J.P. Schneider, um, got upset at me because I, was, I had senioritis. And he put me in a creative writing class and I'm sitting there and I'm like, what the hell is this? Like I was blown away. Um, I forgot to mention that when I was nine, I snuck into my grandmother's uh, bedroom and in my, in Puerto Rican culture, if your parents tell you to stay out the room, you're out the room. And I found a Pablo Neruda poem in her Bible. uh, Don't forget me. (laughs) So that was my first introduction to like poetry, poetry. Um, at 18, my teacher puts me in this class and then after I graduated, he snuck me into an open mic 
and you know I've been writing ever since. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious to re- go. One of the things you said was that you were looking at music and you were rewriting the lyrics. Um, you know, for me personally, like you know, I when I'm dealing with my cow, I'll do like a per- parody of uh, songs in the lines of a cat lens. But what was the lens you were looking at? Were you like satirizing, or were you just like creating it in your own? Or were you making it your own? Or what, can you explore a little bit more of the lens you were rewriting the lyrics through? So music was always something that was being played in my house, mm. from Julio Iglesias to a Gran Combo, um, Flying the Family Stone, because my uncles listened to rock music. Um, and I just wanted to be able to, I don't know, there's something about the music that was calling me. I was always, I, you know, I was hopeless romantic also, you know, like I would watch these movies where the guys sang out the window, and I was like, oh... As a kid, you know, a stupid kid, I'm going to do that. So, mm. like, just the music and the lyrics just would call me. So, as I was writing this, I would sing along also with mm. the music. And just to be able to memorize it, um, uh, my uncles would hang out around the house and talk about music. And, you know, they would they would get together on Friday nights drinking, and they would sing along with the music. So, I was, I just wanted to be a part of the crew, I guess, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be down with my uncle because they were cool, you know. So um, that's that's where I was looking at it from. Yeah, so you're basically you're singing along rather than like rewriting. You, you were saying something about rewriting the whole the lyrics, mm-hmm. but you're rewriting it through like a more earnest lens, kind of making it personal to you. Right? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For that it was interesting. It's always nice to. And, and do you still continue to sing, or do you sing? Do you, are your music? Oh, is your my, you, can you keep? Can you keep your voice up? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, not at all. No. My every time I my daughter went to uh, the Academy of Music and Drama, yeah. And every time I sing, she looks at me and she doesn't know that. Stop, please. <laughs> oh God, please no, don't yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. No, it's good to sing from the heart, though. But yeah, we're yeah, that, no, definitely. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So now you have you you had the last um, twenty twenty, I believe the last you had a new poetry collection coming out, right? Or from uh, so, what is your, when is your next uh, what is your what is the last poetry collection you have? So my uh, my first poetry collection was released April twenty twenty two. So yeah. it's a baby. It just yeah. it just was released. Uh, Receta. Yeah. And what is I don't have this in the bio. So can you repeat the name? So the name of the book is Receta, which means recipe. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's published by Great, uh, Great Weather, right? Correct. It uh, was released by Great Weather, uh, amazing um, open mic and publisher uh, friends of mine. Yeah. Um, it, it was. Uh, it's a work of you know. It's. Uh, I, I get emotional when I think about it. It's basically um, the way I'm describing it. It's my past, present, and future. My love for my family, um, my patria, my homeland, and um, you know my history. So. Um, and I've been getting amazing feedback, uh, very sweet feedback from it. Um, a lot of people are connecting it to, you know, the memories of being on the islands and nostalgia and, you know, the longing for, for family members because I speak about my family in the book. Mm. Um, and I've been getting a lot of sweet, you know, feedback on it. And it catches me off guard, you know, because I wrote these poems in a span of 10 years. And when I'm putting the book together... I noticed that I was writing about my history 
you know, from when I was a little kid to, to now, you know, um, and it, it's, that was never my intention. Uh, I was just writing what I know about, you know, the things that, you know, I love and I'm passionate about. So, um, I'm, I'm excited that it's out there. Uh, actually just got back from San Francisco. Uh, I did some readings out there as well and got some really good feedback also. Good, good. Nice. Yeah. Can you t- talk a little bit about some of, I guess, your performance work? We'll go a bit more into writing. Um, when you're delivering readings, how you kind of got into to that? You said you had a church background, um, but how how else that's kind of been informed um, throughout? Maybe some of the other venues uh, that you started out with as well. Sure. So, um, I've uh, you know being part of a church community, you know, um, prepared me because you know we would have to uh, go speak to people and. Sometimes they would give me little assignments and I, I would go up to the stage and, you know, at the congregation, we would, you know, read a Bi- read the Bible or give a little discussion. So, you know, fast forward, um, no longer part of, of, of a organization or, or, or church. But when I started writing poetry, the last thing I was concerned about was standing in front of people. I'm more of the type of person that if I'm prepared to talk about a subject, I'm fine. When I'm not, <laughs> I'm freaking out. So, you know, I started off my poetry career uh, with a nonprofit organization, grassroots organization called Capical Culture. And that's where I really sharpened my, you know, my, my, my skills. Um, being able to go see uh, people of color, people of my culture and other cultures, you know, come and speak about, you know, their truths and understanding that, you know, I could write in my own language um, was very powerful to me. Um, then, you know, uh, Great Weather for Media has an amazing open mic series at uh, Parkside Lounge in uh, on Housing Street. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I met the Great for Great Weather for Media family and built a relationship with them. Um, and just reading wherever I had an opportunity to read at. Um, Currently, um, taking some workshops at the New Yo, which, believe it or not, <laughs> I still have it read at. Uh, just been there, been to events, just haven't had an opportunity to read at. So for anyone who is looking to sharpen your skills, look up these open mics. And there's, there's tons of them throughout the city, in the Bronx and Queens. Uh, Thomas Fucoloro has a couple of series in Staten Island, if you're in Staten Island, but that's the only way to sharpen your skill. They say that it takes 10,000 hours to perform, to perfect something. Mm-hmm. I, I call BS on that. I'm still trying to perform and trying to perfect my, you know, my performance skill, you know? Great. So, yeah. Always, yeah, we, always, always a student. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned the new yo. I know that was on hiatus for a bit I, where they were doing pretty much remote, but they're back in effect. I know they do the Wednesday night mm-hmm. slam and then, then the Friday night. Um, and then uh, Advocate of Words, the new, uh, I think, program Shout director. Out to Eric. Yep. Right. So, which they're, they're doing some uh, nice things uh, combining, I think, yeah, poetry, theater, comedy, um, mm-hmm. all of those things. Yeah, excited to, to stop on by when that starts uh, getting running. Um, yeah, so I'm, I guess I'm curious, maybe your, your feelings of kind of the state of, of poetry, spoken word poetry. Uh, let's, let's go in, in the United States. Um, you know, it, it, there's always that battle of, of, of 
it's not as notarized as stand-up comedy, but there's a lot of crossover. Um, you got any feelings of uh, as to kind of like yeah, where where is the state of poetry now? Where is it going? Um, where would you like it to be? I mean, there's always this there's always this argument between. Um, yeah, I was, it's funny. Uh, while I was in San Francisco, I was speaking to a friend of mine, Josiah Luis Aldarete, um, and we were talking about. Um, he used to work for City Lights Books, and we were there, mm. and we were talking about the poetry section and how extensively large the poetry section is for poets that are not people of color. And then if you look at the section for, you know, our African-American brothers and sisters, it's a little larger, but still needs more space. And then when you move over to the Latinx section, it's literally almost empty. Um, mm. So when I think about the state of poetry, I, I really don't get into the big politics about academics versus slam versus what Ginsburg called street poetry. Um, but what I think about is what are we doing as poets and people of color to put our work out there? You know, are we creating our own space? I think one of the answers I gave you is that I don't think I need permission to start a podcast to talk about poetry, mm. to start an open mic to give our people space, right. you know, to create our own spaces like an open mic. You know, we need to continue doing this. We need to continue. We, one of the conversations I was having with Josiah is there are these amazing poets from the 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s who never documented anything. But we know who they are and they're legends. There's a there's a brother from the mission in San Francisco whose name is Alfonso uh, Textidor, and you don't, you can't find any of his work. I think I found one of his poems on SoundCloud because someone sampled it hmm. and you know put a beat to it. So we need as people of color, as Latinos, as African Americans, as Asian American, whatever wherever we come from. We need to start documenting, you know, our work. We need to start publishing, whether it's personally publishing or uh, going through a small publisher. Uh, God bless you if you could get, you know, a big publisher to publish your work. And we need to go out there and, um, and you know, perform our work, share it with communities. One of the things I used to be shy about was reading my poems in spaces where people didn't understand Spanish. You know, and I, I came to an understanding that, you know, I want everyone to, you know, enjoy my po poetry, but I also need to read my poems and write my poems in my language. And that's important. For some of us, it's Spanglish. For some of us, it's Italian. For some of us, it's French. Whatever language you're writing in, just just write, you know, just write in that language and, and get your work out there, you know, um, I, I I think for us, for us, there was a turning point when Juan Luis Herrera became um, poet laureate of the United States. He was the first Latino to do that. You know, he served. I think he served two terms. You know, so I I, I think the work is being done, and that's important. You know, there's a lot of us who are putting work out, but we just need to continue doing that. And we just need to continue changing the face of poetry, you know, a little bit at a time. 
Yeah, I think definitely this is gets to the, the American culture and and how and what and how we can kind of you know um, represent ourselves in the community, which will have a rippling effect on the culture, so that then there'll be more dialogue and more conversation as as voices become um, articulated right. and and put out there for consumption. There'll be more understanding of different people. I think I think that. Too much emphasis is placed on the online culture, unfortunately, mm-hmm. where a lot of people like to, you know, give a lot of feedback, which is a lot of times toxic. But, you mm-hmm. know, when it comes to like the, you know, and, and there's so many different lenses in the capitalism, thinking about, you know, is the, are, you know, making money off these things and you're giving mm-hmm. the money to the studios, which are then, mm-hmm. you know, t- tend to be kind of short sighted. There's all these different lenses through which we can look at, but at the, very, at the community level, we need to be engaging, as you're saying, what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that we need to be introducing our voices to at least to the community level so that then uh, we, can, we can enter in dialogue with our communities. Um, you mentioned in your bio a cultural worker um, as being your working poet and cultural worker. Can you clarify that aspect to it? Um, is that part of the day job? or? Uh, no, it's not part of the day job. I, I think it's part of my day-to-day you know, uh, responsibility uh, with the Titere poets and you know our community on on social media and my my personal life too. Puerto Rico plays a very 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 important role in my life. Um, so whenever I have an opportunity um, to speak about Latinidad, uh, whether it's in workshops, whether it's in activism, you know it's always forefront. Um, so. So yeah, so you know, as as when conversations come up, you know, um, I'm always present. You know, in um, La Esquina, uh, we make sure to be inclusive of all cultures. Um, but yeah, um, that's that's what I do on a day to day. So it's not necessarily my nine to five. Uh, mm. My nine to five is something completely different. Yeah. Um, uh, but when I'm not, well, actually, when I'm still at work. You know, um, I'm I'm trying to promote Latinidad, you know, and because we always have to be on guard <laughs> because there's this perception of what that means. And there's a lot of misconceptions of what, you know, Latinidad is to some people because, unfortunately, people don't do their research or, you know, they hear something passed down. And you mentioned Trump, you know, the, a, couple, a couple of minutes ago, you know, a lot of the things that are spewed out of people's mouths who are not Latinos at all about Latinos is infuriating to me because, you know, you, you know, do your research, read a book, you know what I'm saying? Ask a Latino, <laughs> you know, so it, it's part of my day to day. Nice. Um, you mentioned you have, you have kids as well. I was wondering if, uh, if you have any experience with the youth uh, working uh, poetry wise um, and you know, you know, what's what's an appropriate age with which to even get into it um, to start attending these in these these events? Um, you can speak on uh, behalf of your own your own kids if if you want, or um, just any work you might have done with uh, with the, the up and comers. So I I haven't had an opportunity, but I'm going to have an opportunity. I'm actually uh, doing a workshop in October, Great. Um, where. Um, I'm working with teenagers um, and young people. Um, as I mentioned, you know, um, I have uh, I have two kids. Uh, my son is 18, Julian, and my daughter is 23. 
my daughter is um, an artist. Um, she has been part of my poetry since forever. Um, and sometimes she just looks at me and rolls her eyes because I hit her with everything. Uh, she's an actress. She's a director. Uh, she's actually just directed her first um, off-Broadway show okay. uh, last week, about two weeks ago. Um, my son is a photographer. He's a writer. So, you know, and they're always, always around the spaces that I'm in. My son is always present uh, with the Tita de Poet. Um, he's been in the circle when we've had conversations about toxic masculinity, how to dismantle that. Yeah. Um, and my daughter is in the cut, always looking, always asking. Um, I do go to her for feedback when I'm reading a poem or how to, you know, how to do something because she's a great mind. Um, but I'm most excited about the fact that um, I'm going to be working with young kids soon, which is pretty cool. But I don't think there's a specific age uh, to introduce the children to the arts. Again, my son is a photographer. He just, one day came to me and said, hey, I, I want a camera. And I said, sure. And I nurtured that. And, you know, he's, he's not because he's my son, but, you know, he's pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, my daughter said, hey, dad, I want to I wanna take singing lessons. I want to dance. We nurtured dad, and, you know, she graduated from AMBA. Um, but in regards to um, going to, like, open mics or, um, or spaces that offer free art or writing workshops or dance or visual art, I just sooner the better. I think art is something that's missing uh, in school. Uh, not all schools, not all school districts offer dance or poetry or, you know, visual arts, you know, they have their own little art thing, but immerse them completely in, in that world. You know, it's, it's a good opportunity for them to figure out, you know, what they like, what they don't like, you know, and you never know what comes out of it. Mm. Yeah. Speaking on, uh, now if we can return to when we talk about, um, one of the questions about experiences you often reflect on those watersheds in your own process. And this kind of deals with education and, as you mentioned, your upbringing in education and, and what kind of um, tying together the kind of um, exposure to culture that you received in that impressionable ages. Um, so if you can go a little bit into kind of your uh, education and how that informed your progress, you know, because as you were saying, a lot of the um, uh, Latinx and, and, and uh, other non-white experiences are marginalized in education. So you know, you have to learn in other ways, you know, from community that you exist in, uh, that you live in, but how that's supported and how you'd like to support future um, Latinx poets and other cultures, like learn from their culture and, and promote it. Yeah, so, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I wish my parents would have invested more time in my education. So, you know, I, I can't go back and change that. But one of the things I did was I self-educated myself. Um, like I, I, growing up, I didn't know about Puerto Rico. I, I knew I was from there, but I really didn't know my history. I, I had to really, uh, I went to Boricua College, which was, um, you know, the, the best thing I ever did because that's where I met my, you know, some of my heroes, some of the people who I'm still writing with. So reflecting back on that, you know, it, it has allowed me to focus 
on my personal education, continue learning about where I'm from, and, and in turn be able to have conversations with people who don't really know about you know their backgrounds. Um, and in turn, it has driven my artistic you know process. Um, I've noticed that I write a lot about the island because that's what I that's that's where my heart is and. Um, you know, and, and I think I said that um, rivers play a very important part of, in, in my life. I'm always dreaming about water. Um, and, and again, I'm not sure what that means, but I, it connects me back to, to the mainland. Um, I would say to anyone who's looking for answers, you know, to educate yourself. Yeah, you know, going to an educational institution is great. Um, but sometimes you have to look outside the box. You know, find those in your community who you can have conversations with that can lead you to other forms of education. Um, I think for me that was uh, extremely important. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, so we're about the halfway point, and I would love to hear um, a uh, poem of yours, um, if uh, either two short ones or, or, or a longer one. Um, that maybe touches upon some of the themes we've talked about um, or or something of your choice uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. So um, I often write about, um, in my collection, I, I read a lot about Puerto Rico. Um, and one of the things when I was writing this, this book and putting this book together is I reflected that the one thing... I wasn't writing about was where I was raised in the Bronx. So um, with that, um, I wrote two pieces. Um, yeah, and I'm going to read one of them. Uh, I grew up in the Bronx in 180th and Arthur Avenue, uh, the South Bronx, a uh, couple of blocks away from Cortona Park. So this is a poem about the block I grew up in. Uh, and the day-to-day -day struggles just to survive. Um, and sometimes we look at the decisions people have to make and say, well, you know, they, they could have had gotten a job or they could have, you know, why are they selling drugs? And But we really don't know the stories behind this and the struggle, um, you know, that people go through uh, to just take care of their families in, you know, in marginalized areas where there is no work. Where, where, you know, you're trying to just, you know, feed your family uh, day by day. So this is called um, 2070 Arthur Avenue. 27 Arthur Avenue Park, packed, convida came to life by the setting of the sun. Johnny Pump Geysers, abuelas looking out the window, watching the kids, preparing notes for the Vochinche, about the neighbors, to tell anyone who would listen. The moon would DJ a remix of Juanito Alimaña, Billie Jean, and Every Breath You Take, played in every corner on JBL speakers. Fat Joe, Cabo Rivera, Indio, and Pito, Fiera Salvajes, left their corner nine to five, pharmaceutical entrepreneurship, to settle down in front of the building to barbecue chicken, hot dogs, and hamburgers, working overtime just a front 
porque Doña Juanita was always on demands and the Piragua guy knew what was up to. And tamarindo, cherry, cocoa, crema, lime, y limón were more than just flavors. Y aunque we saw them, nadie nunca dijo nada because this is how they kept food in their familias bellies and social security didn't cover the day-to-day pendejadas and that trip to Rikers made it hard to find work. And the music of hot summer nights, Boricuas dancing, agua shooting into the sky, and the kids laughing was barely enough to soothe the yearning for a better life. But what you buy in the corner paid for cuchifritos and suede pumas. Yay, poetry snaps. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, trying to pick up some of the threads. We're talking about Cesar Mindless, this is the truth to passion, ready for Brooklyn. Um, we're here with co-host Scott Raven and special guest Mario Jose Pagan Morales. Um, we're discussing a little bit of, uh, of the poetry. We listened to a poem performed. Um, and, uh, yeah, so then, uh, we were talking a little bit about upbringing and, and curating education um we were talking a little bit about in the pre-interview about how you can um learn from uh successes and failures uh and and how you can reposition those things a lot of times we have this kind of traditional narrative that you know of the dichotomy or the binary between success and failure um but we're trying to dismantle that and trying to approach each life experience as being um something that informs our future rather than looking at the matrix of the traditional matrix of success and failure. But with that said, what is something that if we could highlight some things in your life that were particular success or a particular valuable failure, we might say something that didn't live up to the expectation, which you want to, but you're able to process to, to learn something from. So for me, um, my failure did be, became my success. Mm. So, you know, I, I'm not one to sit back and tell people that education is necessarily the, the key to success. But what I tell my son, for example, is, you know, we live in a society where unfortunately, um, you know, a, that piece of paper will get you through the door. That's just the way it is. You know, I, I remember looking for work and had a ton of experience in a certain field and without, you know, a piece of paper that said, hey, I, I you know, I did something, I graduated, you know, um, this is my degree, you know, I wouldn't get the, get the job. Um, so uh, not being prepared after I graduated high school, you know, I kind of struggled job to job. And then uh, later in life, you know, I became homeless. I was actually, I was working, but I was homeless because I didn't have a place to live. Um, and I was staying in my office and my, and my sister, who was my, my manager at the time, found out and, you know, uh, she helped me out. But what I did was I, I sat down with myself and I, I had to go get an education. Now, the thing about education is... Education doesn't make you smarter. You're, you're already smart. 
you know, but it makes you aware and it opens your eyes to how the world works. Um, and it opens doors that, you know, weren't there before, whether it's because you acquired a knowledge or you rediscovered something and that you didn't know or you learned how things work now. Um, so, you know, becoming homeless really drove me to, and I was homeless and I had kids, um, you know, so it was, it was a really big, you know, motivation for me to, to get my education, you know, um, so it drove to not only get my education, but focus on myself and fix myself and, you know, start working on things to become a better person. So, um, so yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. and, and in the poem that you mentioned, yeah, you had some great, you know, specifics. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Fat Joe, MJ, I think the police. Can you talk about maybe um, a couple of, maybe some of your influences and maybe some of the works that maybe you read during this education? Um, either a particular song that might have resonated with you or, or, or a, uh, another book uh, collection. So uh, there's a really great anthology called Boricuas. Um, uh, the editor escapes me, but it is a, a collection of letters from Boricua artists, um, and just their stories. Um, Freddie Prince Jr., uh, senior is in there. Um, Martin Espada, who has always inspired my work. Um, uh, I'm, I'm drawing blanks with names. I'm horrible. Uh, also, um, there's an amazing book that was given to me called uh, Letters to a Young Poet by uh, Rina Maria Rilke, or Rilke, depends how you pronounce it, um, which really kind of focused me on what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote in there where Rilke tells the young poet, don't write about love, which I find funny because Neruda... <laughs> Wrote about love all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, because it's difficult to write about. Um, and he says, write about other things. Write about your family, about, you know, the world. Um, and if you find yourself in silence and you ask yourself, must I write? And your answer is yes, and dedicate yourself to that. So uh, these two books were extremely influential in, in my writing and, and me finding my own voice. Um, uh, Fat Joe actually, in the reference to the poem, was actually a guy on the block who was a family, uh, friend of my uncle's. Hmm. So people always ask me about that. Oh, Fat Joe hung out in front of the building? No, he was, uh, <laughs> you know, my, my uncle's, uh, they used to call him Cowboy, my other uncle, they used to call him Indio. Those were their, their street tag names, I guess, at the time. Which is, to me, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, and also I want you to say that uh, the themes of the show, one of the themes of the show right now the, uh, is um, the personal is political, uh, being that, um, and I think it's very exemplary in what you're saying, that we want to hear from voices that are traditionally marginalized or, you know, as, as you give an illustration of the, of the bookstore, um, and how... Just d- diving into the personal lived experience uh, of these communities is, is, in a sense, disrupting the traditional narratives that we have in public discourse. And so important to support 
um, so important to amplify, so important to be integrate into the community. So then our 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 cultural narrative will um, flourish and be more rich and more true to the lived experience of our communities. So in that regard, you know, talking about these kinds of concepts of speaking truth to power, translating truth into power, maybe might be a better way, or transforming truth into power might be a better way. Because, but what are you? What are your imprints that you received from these uh, these kind of discourses, uh, and and where do you see the future going? Um, are we going? Are we are heading in the right direction, or are we? You know, there's the pendulum that swings back and forth, and and we're, they talk about that pendulum in a couple of episodes we've had. Speakers come on, speak about the pendulum and how times go back and forth in progressive and retrogressive or conservative, traditional, reactionary. But what is your perspective on all this discourse? Yeah. So it, it's funny because when I look at the question, I, I had to sit with it for a while. Mm. Um, because speaking truth to power is a very interesting thing because you have to be ready to do that. And what I mean by you have to be ready to do that is speaking truth to power leads to death yeah. in some in some cases. Um, Neruda was killed by his government because he was a poet, you know, going after, uh, you know, the government. Lorca was killed by the government because he was a poet, you know, speaking against his government and so forth and so on. But, you know, at the end of the day, it has to be done, mm. you know, um, but it's important in how we leave our, how we live our truth and how we stand up for it, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting we speak about the pendulum because that's something I've been thinking about lately. You know, things do change, and then it looks like everything turns on its head, and then everything kind of changes back to what we call normal. Um, you know, and, and the state of affairs right now in our country, I think the pendulum has shifted a little bit. Mm. And, you know, I'm not really one to speak about, about politics, but a lot of, you know, serious changes have happened in our country. And a lot of us are a little nervous because we're wondering what else, you know, is going to happen. Um, but again, it goes back to speaking truth to power mm. because if we stay we stay in one spot and we don't go out and protest, if we don't write these essays, if we don't, you know, go out and, you know, march and we don't put our voices out there, you know, no one's going to listen to us. And sometimes it seems like no one is listening, but we have a right to voice our opinion about things, especially when we feel like, you know, things are taken away from us. Um, I always think about um, a political science teacher I had, who used to tell me, you know, your rights end where minds begin, you know. But the case of the matter is, is if we don't stand up for ourselves and our rights, no one is, you know, mm-hmm. no one's going to create spaces for us. No one's going to go out there and say, hey, you know, uh, what happened in, you know, in this situation, you know, we're not going to stand for it. And a lot of times, a lot of us feel like, you know, it doesn't even matter, you know. You know, why protest? Why write those essays? Why? Yeah. Because we have to. Because someone's going to listen. I yeah. hope someone's going to listen, you know? And I just want to bring up one thing to tie together with what we were saying in the, in the beginning of the conversation. You know, sometimes in our circles of friends, in our communities, when we're interacting with others, 
people will perpetuate the patriarchy in subtle ways, whether it be in a joke or some kind of comment. You're there sitting with someone, they're making some sexist jokes, some racist jokes, some comment or, or action that perpetuates these systems. And like, what do you, what is your kind of take on, you know, sometimes when people, when people are trying to call them out, as it were, in today's culture, they try to call out these kind of actions. You get labeled as snowflakes, as being overreactionary, as being sensitive, you know, all these kinds of things. It's unfortunate, but that's just the reality, especially when it comes to more bigger platforms. People are, you know, kind of labeled as being overly sensitive and all this kind of thing. But there's a lot of triggers around that. And especially when you're trying to um, kind of uphold um, a counter narrative to what the person's saying, they're not in the receptive place to listen or hear because they're like just making a joke, just calm down, whatever it is. Like, what is your take on whether our responsibility and, and our ability to navigate these interpersonal and um, terrain when, and then keeping an eye towards the cultural narrative landscape, you know? So it's, <laughs> it, it's listen, like we, you know, as a cis Latino Puerto Rican man, you know, like I grew up in a very hyper sexual, hyper machismo mm. environment. Mm. You know, I'm still a work in progress. Yeah. Uh, thank God to therapy. You know, I'm understanding myself more. I'm more self-aware of my actions and what I do. And I, these are conversations that I constantly have with my son. I had a conversation with my son where we were walking down the street and there was a young lady and it was late at night. And I looked at him. I said, do you know what the difference is between us and her? And, you know, he answered a couple of questions. I said that I don't have to walk down the street afraid to get home. Meanwhile, she's walking and she's hoping that no one says anything to her, that no one's going to can't call her, that no one's going to, you know, try to step up to her. We have to check our boys. That's a hashtag that I have. Hashtag check your boys. I mean, I, it, it depends how you approach it. It depends where you're coming from. I tend to pull my boys to the side if something is said, you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine about two years ago, walking in the village and he said something about a sister and I looked at him and kind of shook my head and I said, eh, you know, I think that's, that's inappropriate, bro. You know, like, why do we have to marginalize a sister? Why do we have to, you know, I'm sure there's more to her than her physical appearance, you know what I'm saying? Um, and then you got people who push back on it. Oh, come on, dude, we're, we're just joking around. I was like, yeah, you know, I don't think it's funny, you know. Again, not that I'm perfect, because I, I don't want to sit here and say that I'm perfect, mm. but, you know, it's things that I've been working on. I tend to pull my guys to the side in private and, and just have a quick chit-chat, you know. Um, and some of it is receptive, and some of it is not. And some friends I've had to cut out of my circle, you know. And some have kind of looked at me and been like, all right, you know, you know, they kind of like, oh, you know, I'm joking. I'm sorry about it. But it's our responsibility because if we don't check each other, again, you know, it takes a village. Even as grownups, it takes a village, you know. And those conversations are difficult amongst men because sometimes they don't feel comfortable having those conversations. So I have them in private or I have them right. when we're having, you know, our writing sessions. We'll have conversations around that, you know. Um, we're all responsible, you know, for each other, you know. If I don't check you, then am I am I your friend? Am I your brother? Am I you know my family? You know, um, I'd rather check you, and for you to say that I never spoke to you about anything, that no one ever educated you, you yeah. know. So, 
Yeah, totally. Let me just read a little bit because before we uh, run out of time, I just want to remind listeners this is the Truth of Passion Radio for Brooklyn, independent listener supported radio. Um, thank you for your listenership. Radio for Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So every dollar helps us continue to stay on air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We have a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at radiofilking.org slash donate. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more of it, go ahead and donate. If you're an Amazon shopper would like to donate in a way that costs you nothing, um, go to radiofilking.com slash Amazon and register radiofilking as your Amazon small charity. Every time you shop, a portion of your purchase will benefit Radio for Brooklyn. Um, also, if you're, if you're listening to this in front of your computer, Download our free mobile app for iPhone or Android, available in the App Store for iPhone, Google Play Store for Android. And be sure to keep up with the monthly uh, events, either through liking our Facebook page or signing up for our newsletter. If you do email, uh, radiofilkland.org slash newsletter. You get regular emails. I know your email boxes get full, but at the very least, like our page on Facebook or follow our events through that. Um, we have a few more minutes left uh, before we end. We'll end at a hard 12. Um, if you'd like to give any last thoughts tying together or uh, tell us where we can follow um, follow you. Oh, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, uh, if we, have to- I, we have time for a short poem as well. Maybe we can start with a po- short poem and then uh, sure. yeah, and tell us where you can follow you. Yeah. So this is actually the first poem in the book, um, which sets up the whole book. Um, it's called Elsa, which is my grandmother's name. 1980s cocinas pour slow into sock strainer. This ancestral ritual passed down from parents to children. Sometimes, cafe permanently cooks to the bottom of inherited pans, and that's why I can still taste Abuela's ghost. So I just want to say thank you for having me, guys. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Mario underscore Jose underscore Pagan underscore Morales. Uh, you could check out um, our podcast if you get a poet at Pan Con Titeres on wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and if you know people want to reach out to me for readings, you could email me at mjpagan75 at gmail.com. Thank you, thank you. So maybe Scott and I will stand in line because we want to talk a little bit about the future of the show. Um, so we'll give you a chance to go back to any of lot of stuff going on in the house. So we'll let you go, and then we'll talk a little bit for the last two seconds with Scott and then and the audience, and then we'll uh, we'll thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank, thank you, you thank you guys. I appreciate it. Scott, All right, take care. Have a good one. Bye bye. So Scott, uh, you know we're go- we're heading towards August pr- pretty quickly. Heading towards, heading towards August. August, yeah, and we were, I've already kind of announced on another show that the show might be ending, but we want to give a last kind of call out to our audience, people who want to or are interested in podcasting, you know, get involved with Radio for Brooklyn, get involved as a host, get involved as a volunteer, and specifically if you're particularly moved by the conversations we have in the show, the kind of conversation we have in the show, definitely shoot me an email, truthtopowershow at gmail, um, and we can talk. Uh, you know, maybe uh, you'd like to come in and guest, or if you'd like to come in and uh, even be a weekly host, or be a you know occasional host. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But 
Yeah. Yeah. Looking for, for collaborators in, in any, uh, in any respect, like, like VJ said, you know, I've been doing this for, for what is this? A little over a year. Yeah. Something like, it's been and, like 40 and, episodes now. Right? Yeah. I yeah, yeah. Uh, enjoyed it very much. And, and uh, I think, you know, other people can get, can a lot of benefit out of this. Um, yeah. Would love to, to, uh, you know, other hosts, uh, those that are both artists, non-artists, people, well, anybody, you know, with, with a creative spirit that would like to, um, that would like to join up. Um, we'd love to, we'd love to have you. Um, I think but, it's uh, for me, at least having these conversations and you can chime in uh, has been enriching because we're getting perspectives from people who are, um, really have spent a lot of time thinking about it. They're not just like, you know, yeah. speaking on the fly, you know, they've, they've really spent a lot of time meditating on the points that they have to bring to the table. And it's just been a really enriching Deeply moving, spiritually moving. Uh, you know, I don't know. So many different words they come up with. Planting the seeds there. Yeah, you know? I, no, I, yeah. I, I echo that. I, I feel transported sometimes. I know sometimes I'm in studio, sometimes not. But even when in, I feel sometimes transported some, somewhere else where you forget that you're in just the studio and you're immersed kind of in the conversation uh, and, and what it is. Um, but yeah, it's been great, you know, working with you here, kind of uh, trading trading stuff back and forth, and and yeah. you know, hope that that you know people will listen to both the archived episodes, but that this does have a life on that we can uh, yeah give give that gift to to others. As I well. re- I really like the live format because uh, you just on these unexpected like truth bombs I think come come down like the other day or the other week we were talking to a guest who was a, a prison abolitionist. And I was like, wow, that's a mind blowing, you know, I know we heard about abolish the police, but abolish the prisons, abolish the police, abolish mm-hmm. the prisons. I mean, that's like, where are we going? I don't know. Yeah. But then he was taking on this a wild ride of like perspective that really eye opener, you know, and that's what we need in the society. People who want to not just uh, find a way out of the box, want to blow the whole box up, you know, in a metaphorical way, not in a, not in a physical way. We don't want actual violence. We want like mental uh you know, those walls to be taken down, not, and bridges formed, not just, uh, those thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Some psychic energy. Yeah, psychic energy. Some psychic bombs are okay. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah, no, uh, you know, all, all good times. And, and, uh, you know, we want to be a little bit more in touch with anybody that is listening out there as yeah, well, you know, yeah. feel free, send a, send a, uh, a comment, send a, uh, an email, whether it's a topic you want to hear more of, um, or even if you, you know, sometimes maybe you have a follow-up uh, question for one of our guests that we can reach out to and yeah. get, get some, you know, extract more information. Like they kind of, you know, tickled something within your brain that you really want to, uh, to get a little bit more of. We definitely want to be more in dialogue with our audience. So definitely write to us, feel free to write and um, just say, you know, even just you're moved by a episode or, you had thoughts on so got so that made you made came up for you. So we'd like to hear anything you have to say, and definitely thank you so much for being a listener. And we'll let the next show come on now. Thank you so much. Yes. <laughs>